on the covenant. We're there because we started off with the acknowledgement that we live in a season, postmodern, populist, individualistic, post-enlightenment, all these other descriptors, if you will, but we live in a season where Christianity is being rebranded. And in this rebranding, it's more than just contextualizing it. It's, it's revising it in a large measure. And yet the sad thing, even among the most populous of Christianity in the West, we seem to be unaware even that we are revising it. There is a loss of content. There is a loss of truth, the truth, the truth, becoming more your truth and my truth. And out in that context of subjectivity, we're losing the faith. And I look forward to a generation, even the generation that we just baptized, and it's fear, it scares me. It should scare us. The kind of opposition that they will most likely experience, we've only begun with right now. And it's going to be only those who have, have truly a conviction, truly a sense of what they believe and why it's true that they will endure even those oppositions. And so we enter into this very brief season uh, of reviewing what the covenant is. The covenant is the source where you can get the essence of what the whole Bible is about. It's a covenantal transaction between God and humanity, and particularly between him and his elect people, the people destined to be his family. Last week we began and, and, the, and we showed, demonstrated how the covenant of Abraham, according even to Paul, is where you will get the most essential description of this great covenant began with Eve and Adam all the way through Revelation. It transcends all other covenants and is fulfilled by Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Questions like, who is God? We learn that he's El Shaddai, huge. A personal, not spirit it, but personal God who is almighty, sovereign over all aspects of life, the only and true being that we should fear, given his incredible influence and power and impact over our lives, more so than any other circumstance or person in your life. We learn that the purpose of God in creation is to bring all of the earth into the very blessed and, and, and gracious presence of God. It's to extend the kingdom boundaries of Eden to all the earth, to multiply it and to make it fruitful in, under the kingdom order of God. We see that renewed in the promise to Eve, as we'll see today. We saw how the people of the covenant are envisioned to be multinational, multiracial, ethnic, multigender, on it goes, that it's, it's to encompass all peoples, not by losing their ethnic, national, whatever identities, but by truly being able to express it in unity around a covenantal oneness. We learned what the promise of, of this great life is, that when it really is all boiled down to, this is a preeminent, this is a preliminary phase, we are looking forward to the eternal and perpetual phase heaven on earth. In other words, the promise is land, real land with real bodies inhabiting a land filled with, quote, milk and honey. And by what means will these people be included in the covenant? We learned it's by faith. 
we're told it didn't say, now be blameless and walk before me. That would put works as a basis for our being in God's presence. No, it said, walk with me and be blameless. That is to say that by walking with Christ, relying and depending on God, as our our dependence on God is sufficient to make for us a salvation that we cannot make for ourselves, that we are then saved by grace through faith. Well, that brings us then to this amazing title. Today we read that, that this salvation is not, I want to say merely, but it's not even primarily individualistic. That's, this is going to be just total radical stuff for us today. But it's rather individuals in community, in community that is being saved as through a sacred offspring. Somewhat intentionally, as some of you know me well to do at times, the title reads, Salvation by Offspring. In our text today, offspring, 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 seven times. It's reiterated. And we see this language throughout the covenant. Particularly, let me read for you the final uh, statement. I won't read all seven. They're all there. We'll allude to them. But, but the very beginning, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This passage then will end with a final statement to that effect. It says, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, Isaac, the firstborn offspring of the covenantal uh, covenant made with Abraham. Put that language in your head. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant by his offspring after him. What is going on? Salvation by offspring. Is that really what you meant to say, Pastor? I can hear it right now. Well, yes. And it explains a whole lot of things that has largely been forgotten in today's rebranded populist Christianity. So let me make it even more provocative. I need you to hold on. Don't walk out. Listen me out. All right? Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 9, 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through her offspring. Man, I'm in a mess. A really big mess. It's here. What the heck are we going to do with this? Well, this is about the time that postmodern cynicism coupled with read everything through the lens of social justice wants to take this passage and neuter it. Fueled perhaps by an understandable disdain for the kind of patriarchal injustices 
where men lorded it over women in the name of Christ and Christendom, sadly, in the past and even sadly in the present, such as to readily dismiss this passage as a relic of first century socialization. Even the word patriarchalism is a bad code word today. Is it possible that a third of the Bible is bad? Given its patriarchal ideology, we so quickly will dismiss it. And it gets so freaking boring. Maybe, just maybe, there's something going on here that is totally different than the narrative that we, from our contextualization, would then rebrand this to be. Maybe not so fast will we dismiss this passage as simply a relic of a first century time where we need to somehow reimagine the Bible as not related to this. The first observation, of course, being that Paul is referencing this not to the way things are in his day. He's referencing it to these, these historical events. If they're not historical, if the things he referenced, the fall, and then, as you'll see, implicit, the promise to Eve, the mother of life, says, says Adam. If this is not historical, then you can just throw the Bible away. This whole religion's gone. The meaning of Christ, gone. I beg you, slow down. Don't be so hasty to just recontextualize it out of our own flesh. Let's put ourselves into the narrative, into the covenant, and see what this language that Paul is using means within a covenantal concept. You see, it'd be way too easy, and I think quite suspicious, honestly, as to say that least to say that least as Satan would love nothing more than to eat away at the credibility and reliability of the scriptures, wherein the lordship of Christ is muted for all practical purpose since we can impose our enlightened and cynical perspective over it. Now, I told you it was going to get us into a big mess. But please, again, don't walk out. Just wait for a minute. What is going on here? Well, before I tell you what's going on, let me tell you what's not going on in case you misinterpret anything that I'm about to say, okay? So here it is. Now, before I go on, here it is. He needs to be said. The point here should not and will not be an individual woman is less woman or less powerful in God's plan of salvation if she is not married or if she is not with child. Did you hear that? That is not what this passage says, and nothing I will say today should say that. This is not to be interpreted through the post-enlightenment individualism of, of what we would then do by centering ourselves as a human being individually into this passage. It is woman generically, plural, if you will and who women are in redemptive history that Paul is here affirming. Women who are incredibly powerful in the narrative of salvation, which I'm going to promise you, you probably have never heard until today. It's not old. It's been the narrative all along. 
but it's just not something we tend to pastors. I mean, I've been avoiding it for 28 years because it's just too much of a mess to get out of in 30 minutes. But I think we're going to try. Please pray for me and us. But it will not say that. You will be not left. By the way, why? Because that would undo the sacred calling of celibacy that throughout Scripture is affirmed as a sacred and honorable calling. Celibacy both respect to marriage as well as with, without children. That's not the point here at all. Rather, Paul, the great theologian, of course, being used of God to write Holy Scripture, is aware of a narrative, a narrative that goes back all the way to the, the Garden of Eden itself. Now, this reference here, is, as he makes it here, is clear. He goes back to the deception, the power of women. Not here disparaged, but there was great power in womanhood, evidently, as to lead, to be utilized, co-opted by Satan, in order for Adam as well, who is equally guilty. In fact, throughout most of the scripture, it's his guilt that's being focused on. But in this passage... It's a reminder in the context of, of the role in marriage, etc., that women have this great power in redemptive history, one that almost needs to be balanced in certain ways by virtue of the co-equalness of men and women in the family and in the redemptive economy. We don't hear that. And so let me say it again. Paul here, in this passage, even in the context of Genesis 17, will want us to look at a redemptive trajectory that starts with Genesis. And it, I'm just going to pick up now with this point where after the fall, as summarized by Paul, we get now to what Paul is referencing in this salvation by offspring. Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Redemptive history just got nailed as a great battle between the heroinous woman and Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, the offspring of woman, and you shall bruise his heel, cause great persecution. Now this is noticeable. The woman becomes the focal point of a great battle with Satan. She becomes the heroiness of holy war. Maybe the Marvel series has something to tell us, after all. And again, it's related to her power through offspring. Again, not individualistically conceived. But there's a great power in maternity. A maternalness in the world. A maternal power. There's a great threat to the power of Satan. And yet we'll see that even this comes to fruition in this seed of a woman who will become, of course, Isaac? Yep, Isaac. Isaac, the prototype of who? Christ. Genesis 3 Man understood it. Eve understood it. Why haven't we been reading this? He says, the man called his wife Eve, the mother of salvation, the mother of life, of rebirth. 
there is something going on here really heavy, really big in these passages. And so she becomes the focal point. Now you're sitting there saying, wow, that's pretty wild. Oh my goodness, I heard this probably almost 20 years ago in seminary. I remember thinking, that's just wild. <laughs> is this kind of some weirdo going on here? Well, let me read you another passage. Have you ever noticed Revelations 12, 17? I suspect every mother should put this on her, on her mirror, but every woman as well, I guess, you know, and just somewhat. But listen to this. Did you know how the holy war, the holy history of salvation, the spiritual battle is framed in the Bible? Your Bible, Revelations 12, says it this way. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and stood on the, on the sand of the sea. Oh, my gosh. This passage is loaded. Sand of the sea, you know, remembering the promise of the great multitudes to Abraham, this woman who has offspring coming right out of Genesis 17. He's invoking Daniel-esque images of the great dragon and the great war. There is so much packed into this passage, you can't believe it. And what it says from Genesis to Revelation is that there is a sacred covenant made with a woman and her power and influence in the world as depicted in the offspring, the maternalness. It doesn't have to happen with children, by the way. And it's, I'm just going to be honest. The reason I don't want to get in this mess is I'm right now up to the limit of what I can understand. And I know it's not enough. You want more. But right now I'm hitting mystery zone. There's something going on here. I just know that. It's biblical. I can't deny it. Paul is referencing it. Now that passage just became not so provocative as it is enlightening. That he understands something about power, women, offspring, community, history, spiritual warfare, that we so callously and arrogantly dismiss as if we, the enlightened ones, have it over the Holy Scripture. Okay, so now, think about redemptive history. Where are the fathers? Hint. Isn't it strange or ironic, according to our Western patriarchalism, that genealogy is traced not through the father's line, but through the mother's line in biblical history? Never noticed that? you're Jew, you will know that to be true. Have you ever noticed how prominent these maternal figures are in redemptive history as literally changing the direction of redemptive history? You think of Moses' mother, you think the mother of Samson, you have all through scripture these, these miraculous birth narratives and these powerful influences of women in and through the destiny and, de and, and determining the destiny of their offspring. We look at them cynically. We, we think of things like Moses, particularly, and, or Hannah with Samuel, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, 
we look at it and say it's manipulation. That she made, made sure that the firstborn was indeed the firstborn covenant child in accord with the promise of God's salvation plan. Yes, she tricked her husband, according to the scripture. But there's a bigger narrative going on here. We think, of course, of Mary. I mean, where was Joseph? I mean, he's kind of mentioned. <laughs> but Mary is all over the place. A prayer for the eschatological and breaking of the kingdom of God upon the church. Heard Elizabeth commensurating the mother of John the Baptist. Where's the husbands? I don't say that it's the spare as you men. But honestly, if you were to read the scripture again, you might be tempted to do that, which might explain the reality, particularly as even modern scholars acknowledge, that when Paul is writing his letter, there was a problem that men were, were being, I don't know the word that you could use, dumbified maybe, silenced by the great power of the women in the early church. And you can read this by the most liberal, if you will, those who, would have, who had every reason to want to affirm. In fact, this is one of the main arguments for the ordination of women, which, again, this is not about that. That's another conversation that might, might surprise you in another way. But the issue is, is that, that there was a context where women are, are shown as powerful instruments of God, and that's not a problem. The problem, again, men were given this role of being in a covenant executor. Now, don't read head of, of the home as lording it over your home or your wife. That is a bastardization of the covenant executor. If you only knew what the covenant executor would do. It goes back to Adam when he preys upon himself, suffering, bone of my bones. Uh, you know, what is it? Yes, thank you. And he's saying, Lord, I take responsibility for bringing the grace of the gospel to this woman. I will sacrifice for her. Paul picks this up in chapter 5 of Ephesians when he talks about this, this husband role who is to take on the role of the suffering servant on behalf of the woman. And in that context, a woman who is viewed as powerful is exhorted to respect him. Now, does that change the narrative? But we can't conceive of that narrative. I promise you, you're over here. Man, if I'm you and this is the first time I've heard this, let me just, I'm telling you, I'm not mad at you. You're thinking I'm full of it. Maybe. But there's another way to look at this. It's powerful. Where there's a co-equality of the, of the sexes, where there's this amazing symmetry between Adam and Eve, who you remember were both made as image bearers to fill and to subdue the earth into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful story. Well, I got to move on. That was the big introduction to this passage. But now it begins to make sense. And I can now just pick it apart. Boop, boop, boop. We've got about five points I think it is to make. I won't summarize them, but just look for them. Here they are. As we come back to this passage, then we hear this word, offspring. Notice three things from that. That circumcision was not a family ordinance. It was a temple ordinance. These offspring are being circumcised into the family of God. This is not something daddies could do or mothers could do, but a priest would do. 
same as baptism. This temple ordinance, there was three ways of becoming an offspring in the Old Testament. By birth, it's specified right there in your passage. They could be purchased. Now, again, I don't have time to think about slavery right now. But it suffice it to say this was a common economic practice that was an indentured servanthood. I mean, it's interesting, but wage labor is a form of slavery if you want to think about it. Now, it's not chattel slavery that's going on here. It's not possessing a human being that's going on here. I think Kevin, a couple of sermons ago, mentioned this, and I won't repeat the summary of how people would become slaves in that day, or even just these sort of indentured servants or workers. But that was another one, and the third one would be by conquering nations. It's sort of the, 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 the spoil, if you will, of war, where they would become then in, in the lower rung of the class system but they could still work themselves up. If you don't believe that, just go read Philippians, how this was a colony of, quote, slaves. But anyway, we're, we're going to move on. The point being here is that, that in these various ways, you could see someone being part of this offspring system, or one of those three, you could become part of that as a child, or you, of course, can be converted, a proselyte. In all of these ways, whether through births, through adoptions, if you will, through anything. If you were brought into, by God's sovereign decree, into the context of the jurisdiction of the covenant community, you were to be circumcised. In each one of these points, I'm going to note this to baptism. We see the same thing in baptism. We see how it is that these children, just as it was true in the Old Testament, according to Romans 9, Paul will say that these children were born into these great benefits of the, of the ordinances of God that would bring salvation to them, these ordinances, like preaching and teaching and raising them up to know the covenant. Like this great sacred worship, this sacramental worship that was in the Old Testament, just so it is with the new. Like oversight and authority and shepherding love, Christ became their prophet, priest, and king, just as he was in the Old Testament. So too it is true with the New Testament. When a child is baptized into the church, we see this children idea envisioned when we read the passage that I read today in our absolution, quoting Genesis 17, he says, be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism becomes a means of becoming saved. We've got that all reversed in our individualistic, rationalistic conversion sort of way of thinking and revivalism. We have the power to save ourselves by believing in Christ, and then we become filled with the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit converts you, and then your eyes are enlightened, and you see, and you believe. There is a order to salvation that's going on here, and this baptism, or before it's circumcision, is part of the order. You be baptized in order to be saved. Even Augustine in his conversion acknowledges that in chapter 9 of his Confessions, if you're familiar with that. Where he realizes even after becoming ideologically a Christian, he wasn't set free in the gospel of Jesus Christ until he was baptized. A baptism that itself doesn't save you, but is a means of grace. Now, why am I linking baptism to circumcision? Very simply, because Paul does. And the scripture does. Colossians chapter 2. 
in him also you were circumcised. Holy, he's talking to the church in the New Testament. What? You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So everything that just happened here could be called a circumcision, figuratively speaking, hearkening back to the pre-baptism means of grace, which was, which was circumcision. He goes on to clarify, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him through forgiveness of all of our sins. You see what he's saying? Baptism today is what circumcision was in its own day. The sign I told you today harkens back to the water of the flood, which is a great sedgment ordeal. So was the cutting ceremony. The cutting ceremony put on the, the body part, if you will, that represents the, the coming offspring was a ceremony that we know earlier in Genesis 15 happened with, with Abraham and God. And in that ceremony, if you'll remember, in chapter 15, God cuts a covenant. That's what it was called. Bereath means to cut a covenant. You would do that by taking a sacrificial animal and cutting it in half, and the two parties would walk through it as saying, we take upon ourselves, even by death, the vow to fulfill this covenant. And of course, in Abraham's case, God put Abraham into a great sleep. And only God visualized by the torch, the flaming torch, walk through the covenant. Paul is here wrapping all of that into this verse, saying just as they were circumcised in Christ, foreshadowing all of this, now in Christ you were baptized. Why? It's interesting to me, this is what converted me, by the way, from being a Baptist, a card-carrying Baptist, believe me, when I went to seminary, to becoming a Reformed person or Presbyterian or whatever you want to call it, the rest of the church, Episcopal, you can name it those who believe in infant baptism. Why? Wouldn't it be strange that in order to democratize and to further uh, indicate the inclusion of the Gentiles and the inclusion of women in the covenant community by virtue of this covenant sign being given now to both men and women, Gentiles and Jews, that one party who was included in the Old Testament is now excluded in the New Testament, children. That bought me right there. I said, that's not right. Children have always had covenant privileges. And they were given the holy sign to remind the children and the whole congregation, but also to actually transact that covenant. You see, circumcision was never just about cutting flesh. It was about cutting the flesh of the heart, says Moses, says Jeremiah, and here says Paul. It was about being reborn. The rebirth visualized as coming through the Exodus waters into a new life is what's envisioned. And so we have, first of all, this idea of the, of the offspring, where an offspring are engrafted into the body politic of God, which all foreshadows this great church that we're a part of now. I've mentioned to you, secondly, the cutting ceremony and how both circumcision and baptism represents the same event, a great and judgment ordeal. We see how it is an expression of faith when a parent brings a child. It's interesting to me how we see in this passage 
that God says, I want to make a covenant with you, Abraham, and this is the covenant that you will circumcise your firstborn. The, the, we're going to go back to that, but the actual circumcision itself is described as a covenant. The idea being that, that by virtue of submitting a child to the entrance right into the body politic where all the ordinances of, of grace are made available and accessible to this child, you are in effect by grace through faith trusting in the sufficiency of God to save your child, not your own. That's what just happened today. Two parents who more or less said in so many words, I can't do this. I bring them and I put them into the mercy of God. God, you save them. Sounds like the prayer of mothers, these typical, prototypical mothers throughout redemptive history. Consecrating their child to God. And so we have to remember it's by faith. It's an expression of faith. Faith being dependent, depending not on our power and works, but the power and works of God to save. Thirdly, this is an interesting thing here. This idea, let me read it again. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And you're waiting for it. Well, what is the covenant? Here it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, what's going on here? It's not that the covenant is just circumcision. But it could have been written many different ways. Notice, it doesn't say, you know, uh, this is my covenant, and to remember it, do this. It says, this is my covenant, circumcision. In other words, it's a means of grace. It is an actual transaction of the covenant to be circumcised in the Old Testament. That is very important. Again, I read from you already. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal, not a sign, but a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, speaking of Abraham. So what's going on here? In a real sense, we can speak about these, this circumcision as saving someone. Salvation by Offspring circumcised. Salvation being brought into the world through that incredible means of grace. Now, if you compare this to baptism, do we hear that kind of language about baptism? Do we hear language which, if you just read it with the plain, even just a plain reading of the Bible, it seems on the surface to say it saves you? Yep. Matthew 28. As you go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name. How do you make disciples? You baptize them. Okay, that's a little weak, but it gets just started. Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not because of any words of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What water is he talking about? Of course, everywhere else it's used like this. It's the water of baptism. First Peter then makes it clear. And baptism, which this prefigured, he's talking about now this, this ordeal, judgment ordeal in the, in the Old Covenant, 
now saves you. Does it need to be clearer? Now saves you this baptism. Not as a, 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 it says not as a, uh, sorry, my words are very small here today. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, baptism could literally mean a washing. It says, I'm not using baptism that way, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have more Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Mark, Acts, you could go on. It's very interesting. Now, again, what are we not saying? I'm not saying if you're baptism, you're necessarily saved. I'm not saying that. We're saying ordinarily, like the preaching of the word, like the sacraments, like the communion of the saints, they are means of grace wherein through them they will come to discern and believe upon Jesus Christ. We're awaiting, therefore, that confirmation to that end in a child's sake. But they are a means of grace. There are really three positions here about the meaning of sacraments. One says nothing's really happening here. It's a memorial. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign, it's an evidence, it's a testimony, whatever you want to word. It's a memorial. It's, 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 a, it's a teaching device to help us remember things. That's one way. But there's no real efficacious presence in it. There's the other view that would make it magic, whether it's the table that turns into an organic substance of Christ or the water, which to be baptized necessarily saves you by the water of rebirth. And those are the two positions we don't hold in the majority of the church tradition. And I'm speaking of Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, I could go on and on. Where most of us in various ways are here. It's more than a memorial and it's not magic. <laughs> it's a means of grace. It's a means of God's presence giving grace. A grace unto conversion and sanctification in the case of the Lord's Supper. And finally, I want to bring you to the table How does all of this get realized? It's not going to be the focus on the parents. It's not ultimately even going to be the focus on you and me as members of the body of Christ. I hope you know where this is about to go. Who saves little Jacob? Only Jesus can save Jacob. Only Jesus will be there waiting for him in the so-called pearly gates, which I doubt they'll be pearly, but I don't know. Only Jesus. Now, how do you see that in our passage, Pastor? Well, look again very carefully and slowly. I'm going to read this passage I've read several times again. Verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. That means it's going to go beyond himself for his offspring plural, after him. Somehow, Isaac is unique. Listen to the way Galatians will explain this passage to us. In chapter 3, verse 16, Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It did not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. If you were to trace now what's going to happen after chapter 17, here's what's going to happen. First, there's going to be this miraculous birth narrative. We're going to wait for that next week and talk about the meaning of faith, etc. 
But there's going to be this miraculous birth narrative. That is to say someone way over age who's already gone through all those things you go through when you're over age is going to be given the gift of conception. Sound familiar? Where else do we see a miraculous birth narrative? And then a little bit later on, there's going to be this incredible event which which hardly makes sense to us. We look at it again so tritely in our individualism, and how could Abraham ever be convinced that God wants him to what? To kill his child as a sacrifice? Are you kidding me? That's what's going to happen. God is going to call upon Abraham to sacrifice his child on an altar. And Abraham, with great trepidation, is going to obey. And you're going to ask, what is going on here now, as it turns out, of course, Isaac, the prototype of Christ, is now sitting on an altar. He is being crucified. And yet, Isaac, the person who is to be saved by the coming of Christ, Isaac only being a type of the Christ, in the last minute is saved when God brings about a scapegoat. A lamb, I should say. And a lamb, a sacrificial lamb who takes his place on the altar of sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, if you know nothing else about the meaning of Christianity, if by the virtue of the covenant, we've learned a lot today, it's not just for us as individuals, it's for community. There's a great power in the, in the progeny of a community. Evangelism starts with bearing children, if you will, and raising them in the Lord. But it goes on, the power and the influence of men and women together, covenant executors, the mothers of God, if you will, coming together. And then in this story, we see how God provides all the means of grace where you will have access to, to him. But every bit of this great funnel of redemptive history gets us right there. If you're to be saved, you must embrace Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. And so we have it, the covenant of Abraham that brings us straight to Christ. And I invite anyone who is not yet assured, who's not found that assurance of salvation, I invite you to let this great story of redemption that is so big bring you to the climax, which is at the end and in Revelation in this great battle between the woman and the dragon through the offspring revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, wherein the last words of the church will become, come Lord Jesus. You can make those your words in your own life now. Would you please think about it? Talk with someone. We've had quite a few in this church over the summer in, in responding to that invitation. You know some of you who you are. I, want, I say that for you others to know. This is what we do here. And so I pray, God, you'll do that. And if you are a Christian, would you come to this table and renew yourself to a couple of things? One, please, don't get caught up in the cynicism and the populism of rebranding Christianity quite so fast. There is a great story here one that would really thrill you. 
to transcend the kinds of stories that we often impose upon it. Take a second look. And in doing that, renew yourself to Christ.